0: Welcome to the
1: Green Majority, Canada's longest running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or perhaps your local radio community station, community radio station, radio station, radio community. And my name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter.
2: I'm Stephen Christian Erwin Hostetter.
3: And I am Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. Latour. And thanks for joining us this week. So glad you've come back if you're a return listener. We're so glad you tuned in if it's the first time.
1: Indeed. And Stefan will be interviewing
2: Dr. Samantha Green, who's a family physician and the co-chair of Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, as well as a board member with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And you're going to be talking with her about what? Coalition of environmental groups all campaigning, trying to get climate to the top of the minds of both voters as well as uh, elected officials.
1: You're talking about the upcoming Ontario elections?
2: Yes. It's based off a campaign, actually, that was in BC, and they're adapting it to a Ontario context.
1: Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, Mike Schreiner.
2: Mike Schreiner is a, is co with, uh, co-leader with co with Diane Sachs. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah.
1: So we're going to do climate and environment news, and Stefan's going to do that interview. Yes. Uh, do we have anything before that?
2: I mean... I I, very briefly off the top, just because this is our last show before the election next Thursday, mm. I, I think it's important to, A, ask you all um, who are listening to, A, please do vote. You can probably oh. vote this weekend or next week, and to vote with climate and your children's futures in mind. Oh. There are many different places, Environmental Defense has a has sort of a, a way you can look at different people's platforms, stuff like that, or think about how you're going to vote and ask questions of your leaders. There's a bunch of different tools out there and groups out there that will happily educate you about the environmental platform policy pieces um, of each government. And perhaps one of the most detailed descriptions of any environmental policy, the Narwhal has put together a comprehensive list of everything Doug Ford has done on the environmental file, which just keeps growing. I think it's at like 35 points now or something like that. It's Astronomically long, and it goes back to the beginning, you know, of the canceling every renewable energy campaign that the he started project. began with project. Yes,
3: yeah. To confirm, it's not a good list of things that he's done. It's a it's a bad list. It's a thumbs down list.
2: The other thing I will just uh, point out for folks, which I think is interesting, I've been thinking about it since the last week's conversation uh, with Rahul Mehta, is the importance of engaging uh, the Peel region in in this. I did a bit of a look at the contentious seats in this election and something like out of the 6 in Mississauga that exist four of them are are toss-ups and the you know you hear about the 905 belt but you don't really hear about the more closer in line uh, to to the Toronto as much about their sort of voting histories and and they, these are the places where I think ultimately this is going to be won or lost. So especially if you know folks in the sort of Mississauga, Peel region area, encourage them to find out how they can vote, where they can go. There's a whole bunch of resources in a whole bunch of places um, online if you want to learn about ways, what what climate policies exist from each, each location and what all the other policies are too. But key is it's less than a week away at this point and you can vote early, which I believe is this weekend. So you might be able to hear this and go immediately outside and go vote. In some places. So just look that up.
3: If I remember correctly, there's advanced polling that like opens on the weekend. But then there are also voting return offices that I believe are already open. And you have to go to the one that's like in your riding, but you don't even have to go to a specific one. So it's like you can probably even vote right now, regardless of whether or not advanced polls are technically open.
2: Yes. So please go do that. It has a huge impact on emissions in the country. If we don't care about anything, it's going to be really hard to sort of push some of the smaller you know, provinces or even for the federal government to even actually successfully push real climate policy through.
3: If we can elect a really strong provincial government when it comes to climate, like, yeah, that will make all the difference, both provincially, but also federally, because it'll mean that that theoretically, that's one less province to push back on climate action and one less government that will uphold oil and gas industry narratives.
2: And if Ontario is leading, the economy is so big that many others will follow in a series of ways. We are not here to say that voting is the answer to everything. We're not some go-vote people. That's your only answer. But at this current moment, if there's one thing you can do, it is that, at least today.
1: Or that evil hedgehog will keep eating your freedoms. Huh? Doug Ford loves to devour freedoms.
3: I had a hedgehog, and he was pretty cute. He didn't look like Doug Ford, didn't devour but he did. Oh, my God. Sorry. Fun fact about hedgehogs, at least African pygmy hedgehogs, which tend to be the pet hedgehogs that you get in the store. Their defense mechanism of choice is to turn their little heads around and vomit onto themselves to make themselves smell gross so predators don't want to eat them.
2: Fun fact about hedgehogs. Only here. It's an incredibly fun
1: fact. Yeah.
3: It's an environmental news hour. This is what we're for.
1: Our entire show is plagiarized from naturefacts.ca.
3: Naturefacts.ca sounds like a PR agency that's masquerading as like an environmental journal or something like that. But in actuality, it's just like oil and gas PR.
2: Did you know that oil actually helps with birds' skin? It moisturizes the skin.
3: Did you know that reclamation projects work every time and are a very effective means of building healthy forests in Canada?
0: All right,
1: so let's do a little bit of environment news here, right?
2: Oh, yeah.
1: All right. A study in Environmental Research Letters has concluded that in order to have just a 50-50 chance of keeping the climate crisis to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, close to 40% of all coal, oil, and gas now being developed will have to be stopped so not only do we have to stop licensing all new development, we have to prematurely decommission a lot of what we're already using or planning to use. Uh, one of the authors of the study, Greg muddit said, quote, Some existing fossil fuel licenses and production will need to be revoked and phased out early. Governments need to start tackling head-on how to do this in a fair and equitable way, which will require overcoming opposition from fossil fuel interests. Hmm. Relatedly, a senior consultant for the major oil company Shell, Carolyn Dennett, who has worked with Shell for 11 years, has resigned because the company is continuously pretending to change while expanding fossil fuel development. And a new analysis published in Lancet Planetary Health is claiming that pollution is now responsible for a sixth of all deaths worldwide.
2: I know I said that there's one thing you could do today, which is go vote. I have a second thing, which you can do maybe this weekend, if you can only do one thing a day, which would be that the G7 uh, is meeting right now, and these are the seven, not even largest economies, but seven large economies in, in the world. The environment and energy ministers are meeting in Berlin, and one of the big things they're talking about there is public finance, which is on the agenda.
1: What do you mean by public finance?
2: way that the government spends its money to finance things. And this is particularly important because if you remember our reporting from COP, uh, one of their big agreements there, or suggestions there, was to end international public finance for fossil fuels by the end of this year. And so if you're going to make progress on that, this is a moment where doubling down on that is happening. And six of the seven G7 nations have already signed on to that agreement. Only Japan has not. And it's a pretty you know it's ten point nine billion dollars uh that could be moved if if the if the action is taken here so
1: what can be done
2: The Beyond oil and gas Alliance, along with a number of other groups, are calling for folks to like basically use any sort of social media ability to get words out to um Jonathan Wilkinson and the whole team. And if we can get them to sort of commit, this is the shift towards, as you mentioned, 40% reduction of coal, oil, and gas now being developed has to end. And so if we can't commit to stop funding new stuff right now, we're never going to get to that much more audacious goal to even give us a 50-50 shot at keeping emissions below 1.5.
1: The World Meteorological Association's annual State of the Global Climate Report states that ocean water is at its most acidic in at least 26,000 years. So it's been 26,000 years since the oceans were this acidic. Anthony Albanese of the Australian Labour Party has been elected Prime Minister, ousting climate denier Scott Morrison. And the Labour Party in Australia is expected, to in, is expected to greatly increase Australia's climate targets and renewable energy supply.
2: This is undoubtedly good news, because the Australian prime minister previously was awful, truly awful, world-renowned awful. And the new Labour Party that it won has committed to reducing emissions by 43% of 2005 levels uh, by 2030. And boosting the share of electricity produced from renewable sources uh, to 82 percent by 2030, up from 31 percent in 2021. So that's more than doubling the electricity produced uh, by renewable sources in just nine years. And that's again pretty significant. And so these are this is good news. you know it's I'm sure people in Australia are have their own criticisms, you know with this government in the same way that we do with Trudeau. For this one moment, I think this is good news, and we can just be happy that Labor won partially on saying they're going to do something about climate change.
1: Moving on. The Philippines Commission on Human Rights has concluded that fossil fuel companies can be held liable for human rights violations, as the biggest fossil fuel corporations have quote engaged in willful obfuscation and, and obstruction to prevent meaningful climate action. Around 40 people recently occupied Cambridge University's BP Institute to demand that the university stop partnering with fossil fuel companies to do research. The government of Utah has voted to begin researching the possibility of constructing a pipeline from the ocean to the Great Salt Lake in order to refill the lake with ocean water. A wildfire has been burning in New Mexico for almost two months and is the largest in the state's history. The racist supermarket shooter in Buffalo used eco-fascist rhetoric in his manifesto, arguing that immigration and urbanization are responsible for environmental destruction. Murtaza Hussein writes on the topic for The Intercept, quote, Many are to blame, including far-right politicians and talking heads who have continued to wink at the Great Replacement as being the true source of white Westerners' troubles. Addressing the violence, though, also requires considering the role of scarcity, he goes on to say, not a conspiracy theory, but a very real system of extreme inequality and ecological destruction. It is a system in which the most wealthy and powerful continue to see their wealth and power grow at the expense of the masses. Faced with actual strained resources and environmental calamity, some of these forsaken people are turning to dark fantasies like the Great Replacement Theory to make sense of it all.
2: I do think it is important to continue to come back to the fact that with if we do not solve climate change in a real if we do not provide real solutions to climate change we risk the other side turning to ecofascism as the answer. Like if you cannot continue to milk toast response a problem that is so overwhelming that climate change is without expecting people to realize that your solution is not up to the challenge and look for other solutions. And so that is the big risk of the more liberal policies that try to trim around the edges to get to solutions because they won't happen fast enough. People will see them as insufficient. And so will therefore look to other people who will come up with other ways to tackle this problem, which will one of those ways they will see is eco-fascism, and, you know, that's why this is the danger when you hear about sort of, you know, the Malthusian sort of population argument. These are the dangers that, that like, this is a slippery slope you get to. If you make an argument about how population is the real problem, then a lot of people are going to be like, well, we should reduce population, and that slides very quickly into versions of ecofascism. Whereas if you can come at it from a much more, you know, I think abundance standpoint or... You know, when we talk about sort of the idea of a just transition or leave no one behind standpoint or a justice standpoint, that's coming from a standpoint of, no, we all can live together and better. It just requires us to change some fundamental things, but it is all possible and we can all be better rather than the sort of fear based eco fascism of we're all going to die. And both and and without real solutions that really tack the core, people will see that and you will risk losing them to these much more dark racist, terrible ideologies.
3: The gut reaction to a comment like you're making, Stefan, or points we've made on the show before might be that like, oh, well, but the conservatives don't care about climate. They never will. End of story. And that's not true. We we have already seen the rise of, of eco fascism in, in instances like, like with this shooter in Buffalo, because we are we've been seeing the effects of climate change for decades now and lots of people, lots of most vulnerable peoples have. But as we increasingly see the effects of climate change in the global North, in Western nations, it will increasingly become clear to conservatives that the threats of climate change are real and the threats of climate change are here. And yes, they can affect you too. So like, yeah, if we don't tackle climate change and we don't tackle it soon, and we don't tackle it via a justice-based lens, you can bet in 10, 15, 20 years when like rich people are finally having to give up their homes because forest fires really have come for them and sea levels really are rising and your big fancy house on a cliff next to the sea is falling into the ocean because of like rampant erosion because our ecosystems are um, messed. Sometimes I struggle not to swear. Like, yes, that is that, that will beget radical ecofascism. That will come at the risk of Black and Brown and Indigenous lives and poor folks and women and queer folks. So, like, there are so many reasons we got to get our button gear, but like, fear of ecofascism is a very real thing. fear of ecofascism and the threats that it poses to us is a very legitimate reason to want to get your button gear. And it's also a reason to like lean into leftist transformative systemic solutions to climate change as opposed to like green capitalism.
1: 17 states in the U.S. are suing the EPA for allowing California to set tougher emissions standards than what is nationally mandated. So the absurd argument they're making is that states have equal sovereignty. And so if California is allowed to make its emissions standards stronger, then other states should be allowed to make their standards weaker. Here in Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador is now inviting oil companies to bid for the rights to drill on almost 100,000 square kilometers of land offshore. And finally, after close to a decade of testing and development, a floating tidal energy project in the Bay of Fundy has been successfully connected to the grid. It is the first time a project like this has been completed in Canada and bodes well for the huge potential of tidal energy in Nova Scotia, which uses the power of shifting ocean tides to create hydroelectricity.
2: I, I like how you grouped the last two stories here to be about how canada is both inviting oil companies to bid um for the right to pollute more directly with the fact that we are now very able to do tidal energy and tidal energy exists all across the world it's not like this is the first ever it's a technology has been around for a while the opportunity has existed for quite some time and so it's not like it's super super new it's just this is a particular one in uh in here in canada and you know it's hard not to sort of see these two stories side by side and be like, so we have the ability to develop tidal energy, which we fully accept exists and is functioning here and around the world. And yet, at the exact same time, we're and hearkening back to the fact that 40% of all coal, oil, and gas now being developed will have to be stopped if we want to have a 50 50 chance of keeping climate crisis but 1.5 degrees of warming, which, again, was the first story we started with, despite that fact, we still want to open up 100,000 square kilometers of, of water, basically, to be drilled for more oil, despite knowing the realities that exist up there, and despite the G7 coming together right now, being like, maybe we shouldn't support oil exploration overseas. But we still really do want to let oil companies dig off the, you know, coast of Newfoundland.
1: Well, they're also happening directly beside each other. Yeah, <laughs> the tidal thing and the the drilling because yeah. it's in Newfoundland and the Nova Scotia.
3: Exactly. I've been talking with a lot of international colleagues this week, and it's and it's been really interesting because I think a lot of um, uh, a lot of what I see in global north and canadian campaigns is a really big focus on supply side organizing which like yes that's that's what i that's a lot of what i focus on it's what we need in the in the global north but a lot of global south colleagues are like cool but we do in fact need to couple that with demand side um solutions because it's folks in developed countries who have to deal with like the resource curses that come along with like lithium mining and stuff like that in order to like to to foster and, and keep up with, with all of um, the renewable energy expansion. Anyway, that's a topic I don't actually have the knowledge to dig into. What I did want to say is um, really glad to hear that there's finally a tidal project up and running out east because I remember I went to university out east and this was like almost a decade ago now, which is like really hard for me to fathom and come to terms with. But um, I remember like learning about uh, all of the tidal projects when they were in their kind of like prototype phase. And one of the reasons that it's taken so long to get, um, tidal energy, um, in Atlantic provinces, there are a number of reasons and I don't fully understand it, but one of them, as it was explained to me, was that a lot of the companies, um, making bids to build the tech for tidal energy in Atlantic provinces were European based countries who had up until that point developed really successful tidal projects. but it developed really successful tidal projects in like the Mediterranean where like the tides are just, not, it's not that they're not strong, but like, they're just not nearly as strong as tides out East. And I don't know if you've ever like swum in the Mediterranean versus like swimming on the East coast. But it's like, there's a big temperature difference. And there's like a big difference in vibe. And like, I remember looking at one of the initial sort of like prototype proposals from like an Italian company or something like that. And they're like, and this can be what your, what your tidal turbine looks like. And at the top, it can be a deck for sunbathing on. And it's like, clearly you have never been to Halifax, Nova Scotia or the Bay of Fundy. This is not a space where you want to like lay on top of a tidal turbine and sunbathe. That's not something that that in any case makes sense to do. And what they were finding is that these beautiful European prototypes were being torn apart within like hours of going in the water because they had miscalculated the strength of the tides um, out in the Bay of Fundy. So it's cool that they finally got it right and they finally like cracked the code and they've made tech that can withstand the pressures and the, yeah, and the strain put on them by by those strong, strong Fundy
2: tides.
1: Lovely. And now we'll go to another music break and come back with Stefan's interview with Dr.
2: Samantha Green.
1: back to the green majority, what you just heard was a song called Realm of You, the band Yound, Y-O-U-N-D, Yound, from Toronto, yours truly, singing, or rather yelling on that song, uh, band is called Yound, that's Yound, Yound. Uh, check us out on Instagram, Yound the Band. Check us out on YouTube. Whatever platform you listen to music on, A song called Realm of You.
2: And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, and greenmajority.ca, which is our website. I am here, as previewed earlier on the show, with Dr. Samantha Green, family physician board member with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment and co-chair of the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And so just by way of introduction, you do a lot as I think the intro is quite clear. Um, So can you give us a sense of your work and how you see the need for climate action?
4: Absolutely, so I'm a family physician in the downtown East in, in Toronto. And as many of you know, the climate emergency is the biggest health threat of our time. In the last 12 months alone, we had the BC heat dome, which killed over 700 people. We've we've seen in the, the latest analysis of that event. We had wildfires across the West and Northern Ontario, which caused direct injury, which caused many mental health impacts, and also led to poor air quality, which we know exacerbates lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, and can even lead to poor pregnancy outcomes. We had flooding across the interior of BC and across Newfoundland, which again can cause direct injury, mental health impacts, and can also cut people off from access to health services. And we saw that in Merritt, BC, where residents couldn't access health care. And then we had drought across the prairies and, and especially in Manitoba, which impacted crops, and has had a direct impact on food prices in grocery stores across the country, which can lead to food insecurity for many people, especially people living in poverty. And that's just you know where we are right now at 1.2 degrees of warming. And as many of you know, the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report said we are basically guaranteed to hit 1.5 degrees of warming by 2050. And we're on track to hit more than double that by the end of the century. So the climate emergency is here and we need to act now to prevent further injury, further death, further health impacts.
2: Yeah. I've always loved the work that that y'all do with CAPE because you sort of bring in that health aspect into the conversation. People have a habit of listening to their doctors because, you know, take care of people when they're sick. And that sort of bring that energy to being like, no, the earth is sick and we have to do something about it or else it'll cause all these other problems that, you know, you might not understand is really important.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the climate communication literature where people have studied, how individuals respond when you're talking about climate change. I mean, people care about the health of themselves, the health of our children, and and are more willing to take action to protect the health of our communities and and our children. I mean, and we just saw that, we've been seeing that with the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So many of us have been willing to make so many vast, sweeping changes to our lives in order to protect the health of our community.
2: Yeah, for sure. And so, Let's get into that last piece we sort of mentioned, which was the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, as that is the most timely piece of of sort of the work that you're taking part of. Can you tell us what it is and who's involved? Yes,
4: I'm very excited to be uh, one of three co-chairs of the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, along with Lynn Adamson and Dr. Millie Roy, who is another CAPE member and ophthalmologist, actually. So we currently consist of over 220 groups from across Ontario, representing very diverse communities from labor to environmental groups, education groups, the arts, businesses, Indigenous communities, and of course, health. And we actually represent um, more than 750,000 Ontarians at this point, based on who's represented in each of the groups. And we are calling for all political parties, all political candidates in Ontario to commit to climate action that is consistent with the science and really treats climate change as the emergency that it is. So we have a 12-point climate action plan that we came to in, you know, with consensus and took a long time to write that action plan. But I think it's very strong because of all the input that we received from from all the various groups from across the province. And so you can go to our website, ontarioclimateemergency.ca. If you're a member of a group, a faith community, if you own a business, you can sign up, sign on. If you agree with the 12-point climate action plan, you can also sign on as an individual to receive our communications. And most importantly, right now, you can send an action letter. So at the top of the webpage, you can see the send an action letter button. And if you click on that, there's an easy form for you to fill out. And it pre-populates your local candidates based on your postal code. And you can click send uh, and send the 12-point climate action plan, along with a message demanding urgent climate action to all the candidates in your writing.
2: Awesome. And so let's give a second to actually dive into that 12-step plan. Can you go through them and and what that plan is and, and what you're calling for?
3: Yeah, so
4: I mean, it's 12 points, so it's long, but I think it's very comprehensive. And and I think that speaks to the broad kind of coalition of groups who have come together here. First and foremost, we are calling on all the candidates, all the parties to set binding climate targets based on science and justice, consistent with global efforts to limit planetary warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius as agreed to in Paris. And so that means to set binding greenhouse gas emission reduction targets relative to 2005 levels of 30% by 2025, which we're very close to that 30% number thanks to the shutdown of the coal-fired power plants across the province, 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2040. This should be done while prioritizing and respecting Indigenous sovereignty and autonomy, building new relationships with Indigenous people who live in Ontario. It should be done while investing in a thriving, zero emissions economy, so we're calling for the investment of at least 2% of Ontario's GDP in climate action, and that number actually comes from recommendations from Nicholas Stern. We're calling for an end to all fossil fuel subsidies immediately and a rapid wind down of all fossil fuel use, including a phase out of gas-fired electricity by 2030. We're calling on leaders to prioritize public health since As I've already said, the climate emergency is our single greatest health threat. And we're calling for an acceleration in the transition to both zero emissions buildings and zero emissions transportation, including the cancellation of any new highway development, such as Highway 413 or the Bradford Bypass, mandating zero emissions vehicles by 2030, preventing urban sprawl, and investing in active transportation and public transit. We're calling for an urgent protection of natural biodiversity, including protection of at least 30% of natural ecosystems by 2030, including forests, wetlands, green spaces, and fresh water. And then we're calling for an investment in local, organic, regenerative agriculture and plant-rich food systems. And then I think this point is really important. We're calling for all parties to commit to instituting a broad public education campaign Since we all have the right to know what's at stake, we all have the right to know the truth about the climate and biodiversity crises and their critical impact on human survival. And and we need this public education campaign in order to mobilize broad community-based support and action. We're calling for the reinstatement of an independent office of the environmental commissioner. And then finally, all of these actions must take place while leaving no one behind. So As we make the massive, urgent transformations that we need, we must also ensure a just transition for Indigenous people, for uh, resource-dependent, remote and marginalized communities, for low-income families, for fossil fuel workers, and for all others disproportionately affected by the shift to a low-carbon economy, and also those who are affected by the impacts of climate change.
2: Yeah. So you comprehensive is a is a great word for that because it you hit the biggest emission locations in power food systems transportation buildings and then also sort of brings in some of the more cultural pieces of okay well how can we get all those actions well you need to ensure that that we're taking justice first approach and so this really is quite a cohesive and comprehensive plan that touches everything. You know, it's not only just, okay, here's how climate impacts all these different things, but it's also like, how do we begin to build an you know, understanding and a broad-based support from the populist side to allow this? Because this problem is, not going to get solved from a top-down approach exclusively, and nor is it going to get solved from a bottom approach. We sort of need everyone working together.
4: Yeah, exactly.
2: Cool. So, Let's talk tactics because, you know, this is a campaign before we sort of talked about how it was intentional to call it a campaign and sort of push for it first as like, it's happening for this timeframe and, you know, maybe things could happen later, but right now we're you're all pushing for it up to this election. And so that's obviously a decision itself, but what other tactics are using, you know, how does uh, the OCEC aim to push for a better outcome for climate action from this election?
4: Great question. So I think What we want to demonstrate to candidates, to political parties and to the public is that the climate emergency is a problem for everyone and everyone cares about it. And it intersects with with many other issues. So health, which we know Ontarians think of as very, very important. It intersects with the economy, of course. People may say that climate action is expensive and we're calling for a 2% investment, but climate inaction is even more expensive. And it intersects with justice, with anti-racism work, with Indigenous solidarity work. And and it matters to people from all sectors. And, And that's what we're trying to demonstrate with this campaign. It matters to businesses. It matters to labor. It matters to faith communities. And it matters to a large swath of health groups as well. And we are bringing this very strong plan that is consistent with treating climate change as an emergency to all parties. And and I think part of the goal is, first of all, to demonstrate that this is not a partisan issue. (laughs) As much as it's treated as a partisan issue, you know, the science is not partisan, the earth is warming, and there's scientific consensus, and there's also consensus on what the solutions are, and and those are not partisan. So that's another thing we're trying to demonstrate. And I think we're also just trying to push, really, the opposition parties to, to take very strong action and to commit to very strong action. So Not only are we trying to push conservative candidates to to treat climate change based on the science and and to have targets and actions in line with the science, but also with the opposition parties, I think our aim is really to, to push them to move fast enough, to move in line with the science. And so right now, in terms of tactics, we have this action letter that we are hoping to push out as broadly as possible. You know, If we can get tens of thousands of people to send this letter to all of their political candidates from all the parties, uh, that, then we can really demonstrate, like what I've just said, that the climate emergency is an emergency for everyone, and that there's broad support for action from all sectors, and that it's not a partisan issue, and we want support and commitment from all the parties. We're also inviting people to um, meet with their candidates if they're able to. And we actually have a toolkit on the website as well for people to print the 12-point action plan, and they can actually bring it to a physical meeting, or you can use the toolkit if you're in a a video conference meeting with a candidate to really go through the 12-point action plan in detail. And then finally, we're also trying to push this out to the media to get this into the kind of public conversation around this election. And so we've had some media coverage, earned media, and then we're trying to push out some op-eds, letters to the editor. So we welcome people to, to join us and write op-eds and letters to the editor in support of our campaign.
2: Awesome. And so I'm curious, you know, you've been at this for a few months now. What has the response been? You know, how are people responding? 750,000 people or related people connected to the groups is obviously a huge number. That's nearly 10% of Ontario. And yet, it's always hard to sort of get in front of people. So yeah, how are people responding to the campaign?
4: Yeah, I think that people really appreciate the goal that we have of bringing everyone together. And I think that there is this desire to have a unified voice on this issue. And I think that that was just missing. So I think that what we've heard, even from the really large like environmental NGOs, is like, oh, thank you for doing this. Like, you know, there are little pockets of coalitions here and there, but I think what we're trying to do is novel. I don't think it's been done before here in Ontario. We, d- we have actually modeled this campaign after a similar campaign in British Columbia that was launched in the fall of 2021. And so that was kind of like the inspiration for this. And so, yeah, I think that there's actually a lot of interest. Creating the 12-point action plan was challenging, I will say. I mean, coalition building is challenging. And, and I know that we're never going to have consensus from everyone I mean we've struggled on a few specific points here and there like we we know we're not going to win everyone over to the specific 12 points that we've come up with and yet I also think that those groups who have not signed on for particular reasons are still supportive of the campaign and and actually are still like pushing out some, some of our content on their social media for example So yeah, I think so far so good. And we are hoping to extend this campaign beyond the election period. I mean, regardless of outcome, I I guess the direction we take will depend on the election outcome. And so post-election, we'll see where we take this. But it's amazing that we now have this infrastructure of of so many broad groups that have come together.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that infrastructure, I think, is so interesting and important. I was involved a little bit in some of the work towards a just recovery campaign that the sort of climate movement across Canada took in place in, you know, beginning of COVID. And that really taught me a lot about, A, the need to move the speed of trust and the work that it takes to like come up with a, you know, that, we only five point plan, but it was still, you know, a ton of writing and rewriting and working with people and sending it off to other people for consultation and, and sort of working through that. And, and that was a lot of work, but I will say that I think the connections that created across Canada since the last two years have been very helpful. You know, I think how you do something matters almost as much as what you end up doing and the process of doing it. You know, I'm sure you now have so many more connections and there are so many more connections built from this process that is infrastructure that you can build the next thing on top of as well.
4: Yeah, and, and I actually think like the action plan was also stronger because of the consensus building, like the voices of so many people that came into the, the writing of that action plan I think really made it more robust, more interesting, better.
2: Yeah, for sure. And so for the audience who wants to know how to get involved, I promise I will ask that question. But before I do, I want to pivot pretty far off into a more personal question. Because it's a question I've been asking basically everyone for the last six months, and I think it's valuable to keep asking because I I learn something almost every time I ask, which is, do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it?
4: Yes. I mean, how can you not? Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, action alleviates anxiety and I try to engage in action on so many levels. Like I try to, you know, do what I can in my personal life. We're getting off gas in my house, which I'm very excited about. We already have an electric heat pump and we just bought an induction stove and now we're getting an electric hot water heater. So, so doing what I can you know in my personal life and then talking about it so that other people get inspired to do the same that's very important you know i and i cycle and don't own a car and eat a vegan diet and then i'm trying to do what i can kind of like in my communities as a physician trying to engage in more sustainable healthcare reducing emissions in the healthcare that i provide doing education to you know medical students and doctors around around the climate crisis and climate emergency and then yeah i mean i mean engaging in like things like the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign really to, to try to translate my anxiety into action, tangible policy change. Yeah, that's my main way to cope. I also read fiction, which I think is helpful to sometimes process these complex like problems, complex emotional responses that we get. I I just read The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is very good. And then compartmentalization, try not to think too much about my children's future, (laughs) It's like put them in, you know?
2: Yeah, for sure. I I don't think there's any one answer. And I think anyone who tries to pretend there's sort of one cure-all to climate anxiety probably doesn't experience it in the same way that that many of us do. So thank you for that answer. I I really appreciate it because I always appreciate hearing the ways in which people are trying to survive in this world that exists today, which is not easy often. And so this show will air just under a week away from the election. We were recording still early, but it will air on, on Friday. And for those who don't know, the election is next Thursday, June 2nd. So plan to vote that day or beforehand. I, you can probably vote the weekend beforehand. Advanced polling will should be open. But for those who want to get involved or support your work in this last week, how can folks do that?
4: Yes, so I mean, I think I already kind of mentioned many of the actions that people can take. So please do send an action letter to all your candidates, and then of course amplify it. So after you send an action letter, there are social media links to share it. Also, like send personal text messages, emails to your mom, and your neighbors and your colleagues, not just the usual suspects, uh, because we really do need to get this message out to all candidates in like high volume, and yeah, vote early. I think those are the really the main ways that you can amplify our work. And also, I mean, if you're interested in getting more involved, there's a volunteer link on our website. So we are definitely looking for more people. And also, as I mentioned, like if you're a member of a faith community, if you own a business, if you're a member of a union or another group, you can still join. You know, we're, we are receiving new signups every day. I think the latest number was 225, 225 groups. So yeah, absolutely welcoming new new groups.
2: Wonderful. And lastly, how can folks learn more? You know, what are your Twitter handles and websites and all that sort of stuff?
4: Yeah, so Ontario Climate OntarioClimateEmergency.ca and our Twitter handle is at OCECampaign, OCECampaign. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram.
2: Amazing. And so uh, I'm going to give you a last word in half a second. So I'll give you a second to prepare just to speak whatever you think you would like the general Canadian to know. We are broadcast across Canada through syndications over the next next week. So any thought you might have. But before I do, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Samantha Green, family physician, board member with the Canadian Association of Physicians for Environment, co-chair of the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign. Thank you so much. And yeah. Any last words?
4: Yes. So climate emergency is a health emergency, and we need to communicate that to our communities, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our political representatives, our political candidates. And climate solutions are also solutions that will benefit health. So active transportation, investment in public transit, investment in green space and nature and biodiversity, those are all linked to good health investment in plant-rich diets and healthy foods. And then, you know, climate action also reduces air pollution. And air pollution is linked to one in five deaths worldwide. So taking action on climate change will just have enormous immediate health benefits. And if we can get that message out that, you know, this is a, a problem that is devastating for the health of our communities, our children, our families, and the solutions are there and we just need to take action, then then I think we can have a big impact.